Uh, get into some teaching this morning. We started this series um, a few weeks ago, a couple months ago, I guess, uh, uh, talking about doubt. And we said that the thing that puts all of us on the same page is that all of us have doubt from time to time, even if you're a Christian. Um, and if you, even if you've been a Christian for a long time, at some point along this journey, you've had doubts about your faith, you've had doubts about a God, you've had doubts about the way that he operates or something that you saw in the Bible or something you read or something you experienced in the church. If you're not a Christian, uh, if you're still trying to figure out where you land with all this, you're still waiting to become a Christian because you've got some unanswered questions, I hope this could be an encouragement to you this morning in this whole series. I hope it's an encouragement to you because if your hesitation is that you think you need to get it all figured out uh, before you become a follower of Jesus, that you need to kind of get rid of your doubts and get all your questions answered before you really become a Christian, you just need to know that after you become a Christian, even a long ways down the road of following Jesus, there are going to be some things that just don't make sense. And you may experience doubt. You most likely will. And the question isn't, will you have doubt? The question we've been talking about is, what do you do with your doubt? So a few weeks ago, uh, in part one, just a real quick review, we said that one thing uh, that we can do with our doubts is you just bring them with you. Just carry them with you. Doubt isn't a reason to abandon Jesus. Doubt isn't a reason to abandon Christianity. Doubt isn't a reason to abandon the Bible. Doubt isn't a reason to abandon the church. Doubt is something that you just carry with you. And we talked about how to do that and what that looks like. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to carry my doubts with me and continue to follow Jesus. So doubt, we said, is a normal part of the Christian experience. And we've defined doubt this way. That doubt is when what I feel obstructs what I know. That's our working definition for this series. When what I feel, the emotion that has surfaced because of what I see, because of what I've been told, because of what I'm experiencing, when it gets in the way of what I know to be true, and then the issue is what do we do with that doubt? What do I do with that with my doubt? So in part 2, uh, we looked at the story of John the Baptist, and we talked about the kinds of things that cause us to doubt or that fuel our doubt. Things like a new reality, you know, when things around us don't look like they used to. Sometimes it can be a a good environment with lots of opportunities and options. Sometimes it's a bad situation. Uh, We talked about the tendency for our doubt to be very self-centered. And we gave some practical suggestions for addressing our doubts. Things like looking back at God's past faithfulness. We talked about looking out at what God is doing in the rest of the world, even though we wonder what he's doing in ours. And looking ahead to what God has promised. Then in part three, a couple weeks ago, uh, we said that doubt can often, too often, feel like a barrier to your relationship with God. That doubt can feel like an obstruction in your relationship with God. And we use the illustration of an eclipse. And in our illustration, uh, we let the sun represent God, and the earth uh, represents us, and the moon uh, represents our doubt. And uh, this, in a solar eclipse, like this one on the screen, our doubt comes between us and God, and our doubt casts a shadow, and we can't see God, and it seems like he can't see us. And we looked at Psalm 13, and we said that honesty with God creates a relationship that's strong enough to bear even the weight of doubt. Then we changed the eclipse illustration, and we moved the moon to the other side of the earth, which changes it from a solar eclipse to a lunar eclipse. And in this position, the doubt moves all the way around to where you can see the sun clearly, and you can see God clearly as he really is, and you see the truth clearly because the doubt is behind you. And here's the deal. You may never remove your doubt, but what we can do is move our doubt. 
We talked about what the psalmist uh, had to say about the role of praise or worship uh, in moving our doubt to its appropriate place. So today, we're going to continue this conversation, and we're going to get specific. And what I wanted to do, um, we've been talking kind of in generalities. We've kind of been talking about what to do with your doubt in a more general sense. What do you do with it? But this morning, I want to turn the corner and talk about um, some possible doubt triggers. We all have doubt triggers. There are certain concepts, certain beliefs, certain ideas that when you hear them in a sermon, uh, you read them in the Bible, you read them in a book, you come across them in a conversation, they make you pause. And you're not sure what's going on with that or why it's such a big deal to you. Why do other people just accept it, but you can't get past it? But certain topics just make you wonder. They make you ask, really? I mean, really, whose idea was that? You know, or really, who said so? I mean, why? I mean, why do you say we believe that? Why do we believe that? Why is this such a big deal to you? And why is it such a big deal to me that I can't let it go? Or is it even a big deal? Have we made it a big deal? Or is it really a big deal? And maybe it's nothing. And sometimes these things act like doubt triggers. They take our minds down a path that all of a sudden is a little unfamiliar and it's uncomfortable and we'd rather just kind of ignore it and look the other way because to really face it head on uh, and to really ask the tough questions and to really do our research and dig a little deeper might expose something that would cause us to doubt and maybe even doubt the whole thing, so we'd rather just not go there. So we're four sessions into this topic and I want to take the next two or three sessions to give you some examples of what I think are some common, you know, the big doubt triggers. They're common among a lot of us. And then I want to kind of show um, you how I've addressed these for me, because that's all I can really speak to and how I've satisfied my own curiosity, and maybe it'll help you to follow a similar process on the issues that are doubt triggers for you, because your doubt trigger may be the same as mine or it may not. So let's get into this. So here's doubt. This is, we're going to, for the next few weeks, doubt triggers, okay? So here's the first one we're going to talk about. Doubt trigger number one is that Jesus is the only way to God. You're like, he isn't? No, 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 no. The whole idea that Jesus is the only way to God can be a doubt trigger for a lot of people. For some of your friends, maybe for you at some point, maybe it's why you're not a Christian yet. Because you're like, you know, I believe Jesus is like a way to God. That's good. That's good for all of you. I believe that Jesus could be a valid way for some people, but seriously, I mean, how can he be the only way to God? Come on. And, and maybe some of you who are Christians, maybe you struggle with this because you're like, well, I believe he's my way, I, but does he have to be the only way? I mean, do we have to be that exclusive? And it bothers you because it sounds a little bit arrogant and it sounds very, very narrow and it's certainly exclusive. And I get it. It's a really tough concept. And in the, in the culture that you and I live in, uh, that we're a part of, I mean, this is a big one because people don't like to be excluded. So how could, seriously, how could Jesus be the only way to God? Now, if you've ever been excluded from something, you know how uncomfortable that feels. Some of you remember how it felt to be cut from the team. Some of you feel like an outsider in your own family. Some of you know what it's like to hear about the after-work get-together the next morning. Being left out, being excluded is no fun. And sometimes it's painful. And so when we ask this question, you know, how can Jesus be the only way to God? We're asking it because it feels very exclusive. And if we're honest, it seems controlling and unreasonable and and a little fear-based. So I get that. Maybe the barrier for you is close to this one. Maybe it sounds like, why did Jesus have to die? What's that all about? 
this question is one, if I'm real honest, it's a question I've thought about a lot. It's because it, it, it really intrigues me. Why did Jesus have to die? Because if I'm going to be intellectually honest, which I think we ought to be, I have to ask this question. What kind of God would come up with a system that would require that of his son? I mean, he's God. He could do anything, can't he? Is, did he not make up the rules? Is he not sovereign? Can't he do anything he wants to do? So why is it that God seems to be locked into this system where the only way to forgive us is for somebody to die? I mean, who came up with this? I mean, who made these rules? I mean, if he's God, why can't he change the rules and just kind of do a big do-over? Just start all over again. I mean, he kind of, kind of did that with the whole flood thing. It's like, okay, let's just start over. Why can't he just kind of change the rules? I mean, I, for, I forgive all the time. I'm a very forgiving person. And uh, you forgive all the time, too. We forgive all the time because it's what we do. We're Christians. We're followers of Jesus. We try to be very, we're, we're forgiving. And uh, my thing is, like, if humans can forgive just by, we can forgive all kinds of wrongs and offenses and, and real intentional nasty kind of stuff and just forgive, just offer forgiveness. And why can't God in heaven just go, okay, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive all of you. Forget it all. Let's just, I forgive you. Why does Jesus have to die for us to have forgiveness from our sins? And I know you want to get into a theological uh, debate about that, and that'd be fun to do sometime over coffee. It's just, I'm just throwing these doubt triggers out there. Another version of the same doubt trigger sounds like this. Why do I have to accept Jesus as my Savior? Why do I have to believe? Why can't God just kind of wave his wand and everybody gets in? Since Jesus paid the price, and the price was so great, why leave anybody out? Why not just include everyone? And I know people who believe in Jesus and they're followers of Jesus and they believe in his divinity and they believe that he's the son of God, but they don't necessarily, they don't even use these words, but when I hear them talk, I know they don't necessarily believe that he's the only way to God. That's kind of the culture we live in. You know, I'll believe what I believe, you believe what you believe, and, and we'll all just be happy and we'll all just tolerate each other. And so why did Jesus uh, have to be, why does he have to be the only way? So I want to give you a very different way of thinking about Christianity and maybe... Um, it may not uh, be able to address you know, your doubt once and for all. Most likely, you aren't going to get that accomplished in the next you know, 28 minutes. Um, but I may not even be able to change your mind. But like I like to say, I like to think that maybe we can at least open your mind to thinking this through a little bit. Um, hope it sheds a little bit of light. And instead of focusing on this question and allowing this question to give birth to all kinds of doubt, then uh, the kind of doubt that if we leave it unchecked can kind of totally derail our faith, I, I want to just turn this around and I want to ask it this way. What if Jesus' way is the most inclusive way? So I'm going to answer the question with a question. Because a lot, a lot of us have never thought of it this way. In churches, we don't tend to think of it this way. But what if Jesus' way was actually the most inclusive way? And I know you don't have a category for that, and you're like, what kind of heresy is he going to... Just hang with me here, okay? Because I'm going to take a minute to get to the Scripture. But we're going to get there. The idea that Jesus' way could be the most inclusive way might cause you to respond with, I mean, like, come on, that is so ridiculous. Christianity is so arrogant, and it's so exclusive, and it's so narrow. And I understand that, but if we would just open our minds for a minute, what if Jesus' way is the most inclusive way? There are a couple of widely accepted ideas that I want to touch on, and then we're, you know, we're kind of venturing into some intellectual mind games a little bit, and this could be a little mentally exhausting, but I know you're up for it, and I hope it's helpful. I want to look at several ideas that are just widely accepted, because I know that you're all well-rested, and you've got lots of sleep, and your legs don't ache or anything like that. So um, 
Most of us in this room grew up in the Western Hemisphere. Um, some of these ideas are just widely accepted, and you probably believe them, and your friends and family and coworkers probably believe them too, whether they're Christians or not. Uh, these ideas are just widely accepted in a post-Enlightenment, post-Christian, post-modern Western culture that we live in. Here's what just about everybody believes, Christians and non-Christians. Nearly everybody believes, number one, that all world religions are basically the same. Most people believe that. You're like, I don't. Okay, cool. That's good. Just calm down. All, that all world religions are basically the same. Christianity is you know, just one religion. And then there's like Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism. And you, 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 might, you might believe that all world religions are basically the same because it's just kind of widely accepted to be true. And you talk to people inside the church and outside the church and just about everybody seems to believe that. I want to suggest to you, though, that the truth is something very, very different from that. In fact, not a single world religion says that all religions are the same. If you go to a Jew and you say, so basically you guys are just like the Muslims, right? No, not at all. You go to a Muslim and say, so basically you guys are just like, say, I don't know, Baha'i. And like, no, not at all. And you go to a Buddhist and suggest that, so Buddhism and Catholicism are basically the same, right? No. But somehow in our Western culture, we've come to accept that all world religions are basically the same. But that's just not true. And I, I know that's what people want to believe, and I know that's pe- what people tend to think, but I would just propose to anybody who would suggest that, study world religions. Begin to understand what world, uh, the different world religions actually teach. Because even at a surface glance, you will realize that, I mean, you could do, you could do a, a surface glance, a one-page at-a-glance world religions, and you'll realize that not a single world religion teaches that all religions are the same, because they're not. And you might say, well, or your friends might say, well, you know, I believe all religions are basically the same, and that's, that's fine. But you need to understand you are making that up. Somebody who, who says that is just coming up with that on their own. They're, they're kind of making up a belief system that isn't based on anything. It's like saying in, in 2017, you know, I believe the earth is flat. I'm convinced, you know, the planet is flat, and I know it's flat, and, and that's fine. You can say that even though we kind of know it's a sphere. <laughs> and nobody in their right mind believes that it's flat. And if you want to believe that all world religions are the same, that's fine. But while we're at it, let's just decide that two plus two equals five. Because no world religion would agree with you. And only people who say all world religions are the same, um, those, those are people who haven't studied world religions. So second proposition, widely accepted, widely accepted is that all religions that claim to be the only way are arrogant and wrong. I love this argument. And I understand why some people feel this way. In some cases, some of the things that have been done in the name of exclusive religions, you know, they're, they're just wrong. And you were born in the 20th century, Western Hemisphere, Western world, and uh, this might be how you think, but the statement that all religions that claim to be the only way are wrong is by its own terms arrogant and wrong. This is sort of a logical leap here, but if you're going to use logic to disprove the claims of Christianity and the claims of Jesus, then you've got to be willing to let it work both ways. So the reality is that the very statement that all religions that claim to be the only way are wrong is by its own logic, in its own terms, a wrong and arrogant argument. Because if I come along and I say, I'm right, and you're like, no, you're not, you're wrong, then it's like, wait a minute, that's, ab- that's absolutist. That in itself is exclusive. And that's a little bit arrogant. So if you're telling me that I can't say I'm right, or you're telling me that I'm wrong by saying that I'm right, then you've established yourself as right. 
and you've positioned yourself in opposition to me. So someone who's going to play that game needs to understand that a statement that's as sweeping as that, that all religions that claim to be exclusive are arrogant and wrong, is itself arrogant and wrong. And from a logical standpoint, you just have to admit that. Third widely accepted idea is that the best religion is a religion that is tolerant of all other religions. These are common false assumptions. That the best religion is a religion that is tolerant of all other religions. It's basically the age we're moving into. We're kind of there. Christianity, you should be a religion that just tolerates everybody else, especially the religion that I believe in. The one that I've made up on my own with my little potpourri and you know, little smorgasbord of religious stuff and just put it all together and come up with my own thing. There's something attractive about that kind of thinking, but then there's reality. Because reality would suggest that even tolerance has its limits. Let me, let me just make the assumption that here that you're a very tolerant person, okay? You're a very tolerant person. You're probably the most tolerant person in this room. And that's nice for you. But do you tolerate everything? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm very tolerant. I just let people, it's none of my business what they are doing out there. You know, I'm just very tolerant of them. I tolerate kind of everything. What, who am I? Well, if somebody comes up to you and makes an argument in favor of, let's say, okay, child slavery or child labor, you know, uh, this is a good thing. We should, look in, we should support that because it makes the shoes on your feet cheaper. What would you say? My guess is that you, the most tolerant person in the room, would be like, no, 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 I'm not into that. That's not, I'm not into child, child labor, child slavery. I mean, that's like, that's exploitation. That's not, that's not a good, not into that. Okay, so your tolerance has limit. And then we're like, well, that's right and that's wrong. Well, I accept all beliefs. No, you don't. Because you still believe some things are wrong. If you're going to play the tolerance logic game, then you have to play it both ways. I know it sort of bends the edges of our minds a little bit, but your tolerance if you consider yourself a tolerant person. I'm kind of curious, how many of you are not tolerant people? All right, that's about a third of us. That's interesting. Uh, if, uh, like, you've had to work at tolerance. You have to, you have to, it's not naturally wired that way, and you've had to work at it just so that you can have some friends. Um, <laughs> it's all the people sitting by themselves. I'm intolerant. <laughs> if, if you're a tolerant person... And if you think that we should all be more tolerant, religions should be more tolerant of other religions, even if you're the most tolerant person on the planet, your tolerance has limits. And I, I've said this before, and it's not original, but I did forget where I got it from, so feel free to credit me. The, <laughs> it's not original. The plea for tolerance itself is intolerant when it allows for no other options. I'll just repeat that. I think it's on the screen. Yeah. The plea for tolerance is itself intolerant when it allows for no other options. So if you're like, well, I just want us to all be tolerant. Well, I don't want to be tolerant. Well, then you're just wrong. Now you've just become intolerant of me. <laughs> See where we're going with this? It's like, ooh. So if you're making the claim that everybody should just get along, that we should all be tolerant with one another, you have to understand that even your tolerance has limits. So if you have a subjective morality because, you know, you believe one thing and I believe another, and, you know, even you have edges on your morality. We all have things that we believe are right and wrong. And if you're just focused on being tolerant, I mean, what do you do with that? Because even your tolerance has a limit. Uh, Ravi Zacharias uh, said it this way. You want to blow your mind sometime, just, you know, want to get into some super intellectual apologetics, read Ravi Zacharias, or if you can't read him, uh, at least listen to him. Uh, He says, 
What the person means who says you must be open to everything is really you must be open to everything I am open to. And anything I disagree with, you must disagree with too. Uh, I love that. So if, uh, and he's a guy who can, you know, he can argue you into a corner intellectually and logically and theologically. And uh, so I, I love he has to say that. So if you or your friends are going to, or your family members or whatever, the people that you're doing life with, are going to play this game, then to have credibility, to be honest in, in our position, we've got to go deeper. You've got to take your logic and you've got to take your thinking to the, to the edges and explore it some and be willing to push there. A little bit more on this, and I promise, and we're not going to camp here forever because I know it's a little heady and a little confusing, and you're wondering, where, how am I going to wrap this up and what's the point? All truth is by nature exclusive. All truth is by very, its very nature exclusive. Even to claim there is no truth is an exclusive claim. So you're talking with someone and they're like, well, there's no such thing as objective truth. They just disproved that because they said objectively there is no such thing as objective truth. So all truth claims, even if you say all truth is relative, that's by nature an exclusive claim. So you, you could criticize Christianity or any other belief system for that matter by saying they're not tolerant, but I am. And you would be wrong because all truth, even your claim that there is no truth, even your claim that you are tolerant of all things is in and itself an exclusive claim. So having said that, here's another way of, attack, of attacking this. What if Christianity is inclusive? You're like, is he going to universalism? No, hang with me. I'm just wanted, just if you're concerned, no, I'm not. But what if Christianity is inherently inclusive? And you're like, well, it's not inclusive. It's exclusive because it says that Jesus is the only way to God. And what about other religions? And what about other people who've never heard? And what about people in countries where, you know, Christianity is prohibited? And what if, but what if, what if Christianity is by its very nature inclusive? And I know we don't have a reputation as Christians for being inclusive, but what if you actually studied the historical context of Christianity and studied the scripture only to discover that, in fact, Christianity is radically inclusive? Because I think if you did that, that's exactly what you'd discover. Again, you don't have to check your brain at the door to be a Christian. I encourage you to investigate things. Look at what the scripture has to say. Read what ancient historians had to say. Christianity is about 2,000 years old. It's got its roots in Judaism, which goes back hundreds of years before that. But Christianity was born in a Greco-Roman culture, the uh, empire of the Greeks and the Romans, the biggest superpower in the world. That's Christianity's backdrop. And when Christianity came along, it was making, in Jesus, it was making a distinctive claim that was very, very different from the other claims that were made in the first century. For instance, greco Roman culture was very inclusive theologically. Like they believed that each person should have their own God and probably have a bunch of gods. So you just have your own combination of gods. We're, we're going to be very inclusive that way. So it's, a, it's not a lot different from our culture that way. Because we hear things, well, well, you have your God or Jesus or whatever, and that's not my God. It's not my belief system. Good for you, but I got my own belief system. And the Greco-Romans would have agreed with that. They had many, many different gods. In fact, the, it's, a, it's a Greco-Roman, which means it's a fusion of the Greeks and the Romans. And the Greeks had their gods, and the Romans had their gods, and neither of them were monotheistic at all. They didn't believe in one, the idea of one god. They were pluralist, and they, so they kind of put, they, when their cultures kind of merged, they put their gods all together too. So it was just a mess. But they, they were inclusive theologically. 
believing that each person should have their own God or any combination of gods. But the Greco-Roman people were exclusive economically and often treated people poorly, especially the poor and women. They treated the poor and women brutally. So very open theologically. Like, hey, whatever you want to believe, man, that's cool. It's great, you know. But economically, I mean, they practiced slavery. Economically, the rich were very rich and the poor were poor. And there was no in-between. And socially, there were divisions everywhere. They treated the poor and the women brutally. They had no rights. Women had no rights, no voice, no property. They were property. They were property of their father, and then they were property of their husbands, and as a result, women were treated very, very poorly. And children, believe it or not, were treated even worse. I mean, this, the way this cultural system treated children was just horrendous. There, there was an inherent bias towards male children. So as a parent, or as a man, if your wife bore you a girl, the father could decide uh, whether or not he wanted to keep her. And if he so chose, he could put this no, newborn girl out by the side of the road And uh, either that child would be picked up and sold into slavery, or more likely she would die of exposure. And nobody thought anything of that. So they were very inclusive theologically, very exclusive when it came to how we treated people. That's Greco-Roman culture. Look at early Christianity, same era. This is the historical uh, backdrop. In early Christianity, Christians believed the opposite of the culture they were in, in just about every possible way. Christians believed there was one way to God, but they treated the poor and women with special honor. So they were exclusive theologically. Jesus is the way. He's the only way to God, but we're going to treat you with honor and with respect. Christians came up with this morality that said, this is how you treat women. Marriage is a union under God. Guys, you stay married to one woman for life. You honor her. You cherish her. You protect her. You love her like Christ loved the church. And children are addressed in a way that was radical, and they were loved, and boys and girls. Remember that scene where Jesus uh, is, is with his disciples, and, and he's like, hey, bring the, let the kids come to me. Let, the, let them come to me. I want to spend some time with them. And the disciples are like, they're kids. They're, they're smelly little stinky snot-nosed kids. Get them out of here. Gross. You know? But Jesus spent time with children, and eventually Christians learned to see the image of God in children, in boys, and in girls, and in women. And then it went way beyond that. The early church was a microcosm of diversity that wasn't happening in any other culture or any other religion. And you might think of it like you're like, uh, you got friends who think of it as very exclusive. And the reason that they think it's it's exclusive is because we're living in the aftermath of Christendom. We've had 2,000 years of Christianity and you grew up thinking, well, this is the way it's always been. But it wasn't. When you study history, you begin to realize that early Christianity that was radical in its diversity, radical in its inclusiveness. And the reason you don't think it's radical is because, you know, you've grown up in a culture where that maybe doesn't profess Jesus anymore. We could probably agree with that. But is living with the after effects of a couple thousand years of Christianity. That's why even though this might seem self-evident, there's nothing that's self-evident. You might think, I'm not a Christian, but even I believe that. Or you might have a friend who says, well, I'm not a Christian, but I believe that. Why? Because the early Christians changed the game. They changed the game when it came to ethics. I've got some scripture I want you to follow along with, and you knew we'd get there eventually. Uh, we're going to be in Galatians 3, Romans 5, and 1 Corinthians 1. Galatians 3, Romans 5 mostly, 
in 1 Corinthians 1. So I'm going to start with 1 Corinthians 1. The words are on the screen if you want to follow along. This is 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. Remember, this is Paul, the Apostle Paul, doing some teaching here to some pretty messed up churches. Remember, dear brothers and sisters. And he says, remember, because he's writing in the mid-50s, more than 20 years after the resurrection. And all these people have converted to what they called the way, to the way of Jesus. And he's like, hey, you remember the way it used to be? Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. And that, by the way, would have excluded you from just about every other religion in that, in that culture. Verse 27, instead, God chose things that the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. This is radical stuff. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. And God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. That, in other words, God would include what we would naturally exclude. Verse 29. And as a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. He's like, you know those uppity religious people? You know, I read my Bible more than anybody. Who cares? I mean, you can't boast in the presence of God because you were a nobody and God loved you. I love this passage in Galatians chapter 3. Uh, verse 26, Galatians 3. You're all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who've been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There's no longer Jew or Gentile. Stop there. Because his readers are like, what? Say that again. Because Jews in the first century would not hang out with Gentiles, with non-Jews, and Gentiles would not hang out with Jews. And you're like, well, that's crazy. I can't believe they... Well, the reason you think that, that that's crazy is because that our world has been affected. We're living in the aftermath, the after effects of a couple thousand years of Christianity. So what's normal to you and me hasn't always been normal to the human experience. Go to cultures that haven't had the benefit of a, of a long-term consistent Christian, Christian influence. Go to Africa and ask the Hutus how they, much they like the Tutsis. Go to Eastern Europe and talk with people about ethnic hatred that's been going on there for hundreds and hundreds of years. And Jesus comes along with this gospel, that this radically inclusive gospel. And his closest followers, like Paul, said, no, 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 guys. Remember, Jesus changed everything. He says there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. These are big categories that he's destroying. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And you read the New Testament and you read about you know, all this tension between the Jews and the Gentiles and you wonder, what's the deal with these guys? I mean, why can't they just get along you know, and tolerate each other? And why can't they just get over it? And, but they, they couldn't. And they couldn't until they started to radically re-engineer the culture because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And Christianity, which today has this weird reputation for being exclusive, is at its core radically inclusive. When you look at the New Testament, this is unbelievable because nobody had seen this before. This idea, no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. This was a brand new idea. Here's what Tim Keller has to say about this. He says, at the heart of this exclusive faith is a man who died for his enemies and who loved the world that hated him enough to kill him. That's what people are saying is Exclusive. That at the heart of this exclusive faith is a man who died for his enemies and who loved a world that hated him enough to kill him. See, early Christians didn't kill people who disagreed with them. They willingly gave their lives out of love for them. If you're an authentic follower of Christ, you, you don't 
kill somebody who disagrees with you. You laid down your life for them. It's radically different. It's radically inclusive. Look at this passage from Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. It says, when we were utterly helpless. So, like, you can try to fix yourself, but, like, how's that working for you? Been trying to fix your marriage, been trying to fix your relationships with your kids, been trying to fix this addictive behavior, been trying to fix this battle that you have within yourself. How is that working? Uh, See, sin shows up all over the place. And Paul says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, he says, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. (laughs) Okay, let's do a survey real quick. Show of hands. How many of you would be willing to die for a son or a daughter? If you have children, you're supposed to put your hand up now, especially if they're, especially if they're in the room, okay? Just play with long. Um, how many of you would be willing to die for your spouse? Same rules apply, okay? If they're in the room, hands go up automatically. Good. How many of you would, careful now, how many of you would be willing to die for your boss? I knew, yeah, I'm looking around. Self-employed, self-employed, self-employed. Okay, get that. Rephrase the question. Kill your boss? No. (laughs) Die for your boss. Now, okay, let's just make a big leap here. Make a big leap. Think of the person who's hurt you the most. And that person, and you're like, no, I I just like put that out of my mind. Well, think of the person that's hurt you the most. The person most responsible for the baggage, for the emotional scars that you carry around. For any level of dysfunction you have in life, this is the person most responsible for that. I mean, how many of you would be willing to die for that person? I mean, exactly. We... God showed his love for us, verse 8, by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. This is the supposedly radically exclusive Christianity that so many people are skeptical of, and some people even hate it and want to destroy it. God showed his love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Verse 15, same chapter. There's a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift, you think? For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God. So how do you become a Christian? It's not through what you've done. It's not through any improvement you can make. It's not through anything you can do. It's through what God has already done through Jesus. Verse 16, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even, oh, well, listen, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Not just the good people, not just the smart people, not just the wealthy people, not like, you know, oh, good for you, you were born in a Christian family, lucky you. Or not, oh, lucky you, you were born in the United States of America, you're in. None of that. Can you imagine how radical this was for that first century culture, in a world that was intensely exclusive, Christianity comes along and paves a new way. And this isn't about anything that you've done or anything you can do or anything you can do for me. 
You just receive this as a gift when you come to trust Jesus as your Savior and you get a right relationship with God, a new life. Oh, and it's for everyone. So here's my question. What could be more inclusive than that? What could be more inclusive? This one way that Jesus offers, I think it's the most radically inclusive way. A few years ago, Andy Stanley said it this way. He said it means three things. It means that everybody's invited, everybody's included, and everybody's important. What if Jesus' way is the most inclusive way? And I realize I probably haven't changed your mind in the last 35 minutes, but I hope at the very least that your mind is open. And if you're staking your life on what you believe, and we all kind of are, isn't this worth honestly investigating? What if Jesus' way is the most inclusive way? Let me read this verse from Romans 5, and then we're going to repeat it out loud together. Romans 5, verse 18. It says, Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. Now, can we, would you read it with me? Let's read it together. Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Everyone. What could be more inclusive? So what do we do about this? What difference does it make? What can I do as a response? This should be our question. Some of this has been a little heady, uh, a little academic and logical, um, but what can I do in response to what I've heard? If you're a Christian, maybe I would propose to you that maybe we can change the conversation with someone who thinks that Christianity is exclusive. And they probably aren't going to go, oh, that's right, I'm wrong, I've been wrong all this time, you're so smart. That's probably not going to be the response. But maybe it'll open their minds at least. And to those of you for whom this kind of thing has become a stumbling block, it's become one of those doubt triggers for you, maybe it's a thing that's kept you from being all in. Let me answer that question with a question. How will you respond to the fact that everyone is invited, everyone is included, and everyone is important, including you? See, it's not just a story. It's not logic. It's not just academic. It's personal. And God came in the person of Jesus, not just to save humanity. He came for you because he loved you, even while you were in your sin. And he loved you in your rebellion. And he loved you when you were broken. And as crazy as it sounds, he wants a relationship with you. And he wants to have a restored relationship with you. Your Heavenly Father wants that for you. So what if Jesus' way is the most inclusive way? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, there's a lot to think about today. We're staking our lives on what we believe. We all are. Help us be willing and intellectually honest enough to test the validity of some of our assumptions. Things like this idea that all world religions are the same and that Christianity is so exclusive. Father, as we um, study the good news, may we come to understand that Jesus really loves us, that this isn't just historical and logical, but it's personal. And Father, I pray that there's anyone in this room who's listening whose application of this teaching this morning is to accept you as their Savior. I pray that they would take that step towards you today. Just keep your heads bowed for a second. I don't do this often, but I'm just wondering, have you ever expressed to your Heavenly Father thank you 
Thank you that Jesus died for my sin. Thank you that he was buried and that he rose from the dead and that he lives today. And I, I want to embrace him as my Savior. Have you ever had that moment in time? And I know you have questions that are so sophisticated, I'll never be able to answer them for you in a satisfactory way. But the real issue is what have you done with the gospel? That Jesus died for your sins and he rose from the dead to restore relationship with your Heavenly Father. There's never been a moment in your life where you've embraced that personally. I want to give you that opportunity to have that moment today. Today's a perfect day. This is the message that brings us together. And if during this message there was something that clicked in you, that dawned on you, that somehow all the other questions kind of uh, filtered away and there was just this one big thing in front of you and you think, you know, I think I believe this, then perhaps this is the day for you to embrace this message and to be restored in a relationship with your Heavenly Father. So I'm just going to be bold this morning, and I'm going to ask those of you who've never accepted Christ as your Savior to take that step today to receive this free gift of salvation through the person of Jesus. And if you find yourself right there, right now, I just want to lead you through a prayer. And you can change the words. You don't have to say it out loud. I mean, you can if you want to. And you just say it in your heart. Would you just say, Heavenly Father, I believe Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world and for my sins. I believe he was buried. I believe on the third day you raised him from the dead and that he was seen. And I embrace him as my personal Savior. And I'm trusting him to provide forgiveness for all of my sin, my past sin, the sins I'll commit this very day and the sins I'll commit in the future. So receive me into your family. I want to establish this new relationship with my Heavenly Father in the name of Jesus, the resurrected Savior. Amen. Look up for a second. If, uh, if today you prayed that prayer with me, or I don't know, maybe there was just some kind of sig- something significant today that clicked for you, uh, we provide these connect cards in the seat pockets close to you, and uh, we'd love to know about what God is doing in your spiritual journey. And if today was a moment in time for you, we'd love to know about that. And you could just fill out that card and give it to me. You can give it to Pastor Bob as you leave. You can put it in an offering box. Um, We'd, we'd love to have more of a conversation with you. Um, just want to play a song for you. Listen to these lyrics. You're my constant in the chaos you're my compass when the road is long you're my portion never failing for me only Jesus let my heart want for nothing but you just you Let my heart want for nothing but you, just you The riches of this world could never satisfy Let my heart want for only you You're my future, 
and you redeem my past every moment and then forever for me only jesus for me Just you, the riches of this world. 